Hey, really good friends. This podcast contains adult content and language. Listen with care. Hello. And welcome to Historically Really Good Friends, a queer history podcast. I'm Rachel Craig. And I'm Jared Femblow. Welcome, Jared. Hello, and <laughs> listeners, welcome to episode 26 of Historically Really Good Friends. We are officially we six months into this podcast, and thank you everyone for listening. This will be all. Goodbye. We did it, and we're done. It's, yeah, it's curtains for us. Never truthfully done a hobby for this long, so... um well, we can't do it anymore. Right. That that was it. That was our limit and yeah. we're finished. It's weird mm-hmm. because like people will ask me what my hobbies are. And now I have I'm usually like, oh, I don't really I don't really have hobbies. I don't know. Like I watch movies, whatever. And now I'm like, well, like I do have a podcast. And then I'm embarrassed yeah. by saying that I have a podcast yeah. because it's like, <laughs> oh, I have a podcast. Yeah. You know don't listen I, to it though. Right, right. Nobody listened to this. How do you feel six months in? I'm just happy and proud of it. I think this was sort of just like, oh, we'll try it and we'll see. I definitely honestly did not think it would go this long. It's gone by really quickly. It has been, I think, a lot of work for both of us, but Mm -hmm. it is one of the most enjoyable things I've got going on right now. So thank you all for joining us for this six months. Seriously. I mean, we started this more or less so that we could talk together more (laughs) because we always made resolutions like we're going to talk once at least once a week and then we Mm -hmm. would not talk for eight months so we were like okay we really need to do something that locks us into talking to each other and now because of this podcast we talk every single day and we're able to see each other more often so by y'all listening you're letting Rachel and I (laughs) have an excuse to see each other and talk to each other Thank you for helping Jared and I maintain our friendship. <laughs> we couldn't do it without you. <laughs> I just learned before we started recording that I've seen Jared now too much where I have no more things to tell him and I'm just repeating my stories over and over again. So there's okay. been good and bad things. Yeah. I'll, I'll listen to them every time. Oh, thank you. How are you doing? Like, what are you up to? What have you been What's going on on your end? It's Leo season, so got a lot of good stuff going on. I am a Leo. It is almost my birthday, um, which Mm -hmm. is an event. I am a weird birthday person, as my family and friends so lovingly point out. I think that I'm pretty uh, cool just going with the flow most of the time, except around my birthday. So I've got all that stuff going on coming up. That's fine. What do you you mean you're like going with the flow and then you have to plan your birthday or you want to ignore your birthday? No, so I have to plan my birthday and I really want Mm. everyone to have the most fun and really enjoy themselves. Mm -hmm. And if you aren't Mm -hmm. happy all the time, I will cry. Are you a person that's like, I'm going to cry on my birthday every year no Mm -hmm. matter what? Like it just happens. There's a pretty safe bet. Yeah. Yeah. And for those listeners who like the TV show New Girl, I really need to just do 
like a Jessica Day style birthday where I have no, I set no expectations. I do something just on my own and I don't ask anything of anyone else because I am, you know, like I think I don't really expect many things from people. I just really love spending time with my friends and family. But for some reason on my birthday, like I set these, I'm like, we're not going to Disneyland. How could you do that to me? And it's like, we, why, why would you think that? We were not planning right. that. So I don't know why I get like that. I don't know. I think it's the, the really tough combination of being both a Leo sun and a Capricorn rising. So I think I just combine the, the, the attention seeking and also the emotional stuff just a little too much. Wow. So your birthday is a roller coaster. It, it sounds is. like your emotional stability is a roller coaster just in general. I, it really is. So thank you for bringing Jared and I together, but also still keeping us at a distance so he does mm-hmm. not have to deal with that. Otherwise, <laughs> things are good. I think I may have told you this before, but I sort of diagnosed myself with monkeypox last week because I am a hypochondriac now post-COVID. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I had like one, like it was literally a pimple, but I was like, oh my gosh, I have, I'm tired. Yes. So in my research and talking about monkeypox to everyone around me, because I was making them look at my body to see if I had monkeypox, my (laughs) phone must have heard me and sort of started sharing all this stuff about it. And, you know, I don't love that. I'm not a doctor, obviously. And I don't know what this means for like, like I don't know what this means in terms of we just came out of a pandemic what is this going to spread life stuff like that so just but but also we are still in the pandemic of sure COVID-19 let's not forget that right but I wanted to say that the things I've been seeing are like sort of like don't sound the alarms it's just Mm -hmm. gay men who are affected um Mm -hmm. or men who have sex with men and first of all that's not true so debunk myth bust that one Mm -hmm. second of all even if it was true still take it seriously it's important that we're all still aware of those things and for me the awareness of like how is it being talked about? Uh, again, I'm not saying we all need to like lock down and be really mindful of things. I'm just saying like when you see this stuff on social media or the news, like it's just rubbing me the wrong way that it's just like, no worries. It's just men who have sex with other men. Right. And it's an it's primarily an STI and it's not. So oh, it's not an STI at all. No, 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 it's not. And that's sort of how it's being conveyed, at least in the spaces I saw. So just be on the lookout for that stuff, friends. Yeah, I saw a woman who posted a TikTok this past week where she went to the doctor and she was like, I think I might have monkeypox. Can I get tested? And the doctor was like, well, they're telling us not to test like women or like these type of people. So the doctor called someone else in the field and was like, I think I need to test this person for monkeypox and the someone else like the CDC or whatever was like, no, you don't need to test like don't do not test her like don't do it. And so like they're specifically telling doctors not to test people yeah. for monkeypox and also the rollout of the vaccine has been really slow. Mm-hmm. The information on it has been really slow. It's the same way that they stigmatized HIV AIDS to specifically queer men when Mm -hmm. women are affected, women, pregnant women are affected, people of color are affected at Mm -hmm. disproportionately high rates. It's 
the same thing that happened in the 80s is kind of happening now. And also, mm-hmm. like you said, we are just coming out of a pandemic and we 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 have the preparedness. We just went through this. Why are we not? Right. Why are we being lackadaisical with it and just kind of like dragging our feet? Like we should have all of the systems in place to be like, whoa, hey, this is what's happening. Here we go again. Let's let's get ahead of this curve yeah. actually and let's stop this. Yeah. Mama Mia, here we go again. Here we go again. Yeah, that I think that's that was really it that I don't have enough information to talk about medicine or like what we what precautions mm-hmm. we should or shouldn't be taking or, or really what the spread is like at all. I'm just sort of observing the language around it that mm-hmm. exactly Jared as you were talking about kind of feels like it has further reaching implications than for some reason we're aware of right now. Right. What happens when you talk about something in a way that doesn't accurately reflect the populations that can be impacted and anyone can right. be impacted. Oh, especially, sorry, just want to add, especially mm-hmm. when you have Republican politicians calling it gay COVID, that like, what is <gasps> I that? didn't see that. Yeah, oh, I don't God. remember who it was, but it was some Republican congressman or poly- governor or someone that was calling it. I mean, it might even have been Tucker Carlson. I don't know. It was someone <laughs> that called it gay COVID, like to, like to an audience. Basically, it's like no, anyone can get right. a, any. It's like literally anyone that accidentally touches the lesion mm-hmm. juice or whatever mm-hmm. the fuck it's called, like anyone <laughs> can ooze. get it. It's the yeah. ooze. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's something to be aware of and just see how people are talking about it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's wild. Yeah, so I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, and I, you're seeing a lot more than I am and that's worse. I hate that. Um, mm-hmm. So be on the lookout friends also i don't in case you were wondering i don't have monkeypox i just have an ear Ooh. infection because i am mm-hmm. a about to be 24 year old who is also a preschooler 24 going on 14 not even 24 going yes. on four four yep that's yeah. about it so that's why i sound maybe a little icky but i don't have monkeypox but if you're hearing about monkeypox be on the lookout for for how it's being talked about i think is my little psa for today jared tell me what's going on with your life My life is busy as ever, doing a million and one Mm. things. One thing I did want to say was I am listening to a new podcast that I really like. And so I have a podcast recommendation. And well, it's kind of two podcast recommendations. So there's this one podcast called Criminal. And Phoebe Judge Mm. is the host of it. And, you know, she says, like, I'm Phoebe Judge and this is Criminal. And so that's all I was listening to for like a few weeks. And I think that's why I was feeling really like apathetic and really like, like a cynic. Mm-hmm. And I was just feeling, cause I was just like listening to like true crime stories and it was like from the real people. And I was just really like, that's all I was consuming. And then I found out that she has a second podcast called this is love. And yeah. it's all about stories about love in different ways and different facets. And, you know, people loving people or people loving objects or just like the state of love or it's like all of these first person or you know like kind of first person stories about something they love or about just love in general and it's a really really sweet podcast and the episodes are like 15 to 30 minutes like they're super short and it's the people that are in the actual stories telling the stories 
And it just like brought me out of whatever apathetic feeling Mm -hmm. mood I was in. And it just has like brightened my disposition entirely. And I just like feel so happy listening to it. And it is such a good podcast. So it's called This Is Love. Go check it out. I think it's streaming pretty much everywhere that you can listen to Historically Really Good Friends. I love that. Thank you for that recommendation. I've also been listening to podcasts that are maybe a little bit more gloomy. So that Mm -hmm. sounds really lovely. Yeah, it's a pick-me-up. Right. Fun. Yeah, it's really, really great. I love it. I'm sold. So that's all I had. Oh, no, that's not all I had. I actually have a little correction from last week. Okay. From last week's episode, bomb.com. I talked about Alan Turing and Rachel, you had asked me if Alan Turing had been neurodivergent at all. And I said that I had read an article in which stated that there was a potential for Alan Turing to have Asperger's. And one of our lovely, lovely listeners reached out to us and was like, hey, just so you know, Asperger's is not the name anymore. It's kind of looked down upon in the the disabled community it's not the term that we use for it anymore so just kind of be mindful of that and so thank you vera for bringing that to my attention and pointing that out i did not know that that term is no longer used and so i did a little research into why that term is no longer used and i came across this article from npr called doctor behind asperger syndrome subject to name change And in it, the person that's being interviewed is an author of the book Asperger's Children, The Origins of Autism in Nazi Vienna. And the author is Edith Scheffer. And she says Hans Asperger was a pediatrician who lived in Vienna in the 1930s and 40s. And basically, he had a big role in the death of children, specifically disabled children. And He wasn't studied that much in the whole scene of medicine until recently, and it kind of came out that he had a heavy hand in Nazi involvement. And so Edith points out basically that eponymous diagnoses are granted to honor individuals who are describing a condition for the first time and to commend their work as a human being. And in my opinion, Asperger merits neither. The second reason to the name change or to rename the diagnosis is that it no longer exists as an official diagnosis, according to the American Psychiatric Association. In 2013, it was reclassified as autism spectrum disorder. And so today, you can't receive a diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome in the United States. It remains an official diagnosis in other countries that go by the World Health Organization standard. But even that is being reclassified because it's seen as indistinct from other criteria for autism. Thank you again, Vera, for bringing that to our attention. Little corrections corner. And I appreciate it. If anybody ever hears something that we say incorrectly, please let us know. We are more than willing yes. to do research and listen and hear and change and and all those good yeah. things. We mean it when we say that. Please, please correct us. And yeah, thank you. I know, Vera, and for those listening, if that's language that you use, that's exactly it. Autism spectrum disorder is is the official, more official classification now. And also, yeah, I was able to learn something from that as well. I did not know that background. I knew that there was a distinction now in in the different language, but I didn't know that history. So I really also appreciate that because it was 
very interesting to be able to go back and learn sort of different history than we talk about here and how that's relevant yeah. still to the to what we're talking about and how we talk about things. So thank you very much. And on that note, why yeah. don't we, we get, get into, into our stories for this week, our our six month anniversary podcast anniversary? Ooh, ooh, woohoo! Let's do it. I think I'm going first on this mm-hmm. anniversary on this pod anniversary. Okay, so. Today I'm talking about Tom of Finland. Okay, I the I just got like red cheeks, like rosy cheeks. I got a little embarrassed for some reason, and I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I guess because of his artwork. I just like got flustered when you said his name. I'm I'm excited to learn about him. So yeah, you're you're blushing a little bit talking about <laughs> yeah. Tom of Finland. Yeah, I was a little. I felt as if I was typing a little some of this out, and I was like, oh, I know some people who listen to this. That is, makes me I'm gonna turn off, <laughs> but that's okay. So spoilers ahead, I guess in in these um sources but for this week i used happy 100 years the tom of finland biography from the advocate the tom of finland wikipedia page good old wikipedia page Mm -hmm. i didn't watch this movie but i shouted out and so if anybody does want to watch it there is a tom of finland movie which is just called tom of finland and it was made in 2017 Another article from The Advocate entitled Tom of Finland on Exhibit in Los Angeles by Christopher Harity. The About Tom of Finland section from the Tom of Finland Foundation, The Life of the Artist. And then finally, a New York Times article entitled Eight Artists on the Influence of Tom of Finland. So, I'm so excited to get started. As Jared maybe hinted at, Tom is an artist. Um, And he's a very specific kind of artist. So I was looking for subjects for this week because this was a very special week. And I really wanted to find someone I could learn a lot more about. So as I'm scrolling through, I thought Tom of Finland, just as he was listed out, was a cool name. It's simple. Mm. It was like kind of funny. I don't know. I was just like Tom. Tom of Finland. Tom from Finland. You know Tom. Yeah. From Finland. Tom. Yeah. Just like Tom. You know Tom. So I was like, that sounds so fun. He seems like an, there's no way this is not going to be an interesting story. And oh, but it was. So I looked him up and I was immediately hooked. He gets far more interesting than the name would suggest. He is not a Finnish prince, which I thought for a second, maybe they had them and he was like royalty in somewhere. But instead, he is an erotic artist known for his stylized illustrations of men who some say, quote, is the most influential creator of gay pornographic images. Mm-hmm. So there it is. This wouldn't be a classic historically really good friends episode if I picked a subject whose name I mm-hmm. didn't need to practice saying off camera a number of times. So as you may have expected, Tom of Finland is not his birth given name. <laughs> Tom was born Tuko Valio Loxanen in Karina, Finland on May 8th, 1920. So I didn't get that right. I did. No. I know I didn't. No, I know I didn't. <laughs> There's no um, way. But at the same time, it's okay. It's listen, open to corrections very genuinely, but I don't. There's a lot of U's. There's a lot of double letters. I'll sp- I can spell mm-hmm. it out for you. I just don't know how to pronounce it, and I feel like it would be worse if I. I think you did a great did job. Did it really poorly? Thank you. So there's not as much known about his early years, except that 
So he's born in 1920, and Finland becomes independent from Russian control just three years before this in 1917. This is sort of important because this meant that the country he was born into, Finland as a whole, was still sort of like figuring its shit out. There was not a ton of, you know, independent infrastructure, major cities, or like a really well-structured or booming economy. So he grew up around working people, many of whom were teachers and farmers. Like, this was sort of what he was around a lot of the time. But because this was, I guess, a sort of renaissance period for the country, for Finland, he grew up surrounded by art, literature, and music, the classic renaissance things, um, as the country sort of came into itself. He had an immediate fondness for artistic expression while still being fascinated with the rugged outdoors life that most Finnish people experience. So you have to imagine there's not a ton of cities. People are really just like hardworking outdoorsmen. It's pretty like vast nature. So there's a couple of these dynamics that we sort of see play out throughout Tom's life Mm -hmm. or Tuoko's life, Tuko. Mm -hmm. I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep trying. Okay. So we're fast forwarding now because that's sort of the information that we have about his early life. So we're fast forwarding. So in 1939, he began taking higher level courses in marketing and advertising before being inducted to serve with the Finnish military in Helsinki during World War II. So I tried to look this up and I got a little confused so I don't know if this was what was going on at the time or if this is just what happens today but it's my understanding that similar to a few other countries I believe Greece and Israel citizens have to serve in them all citizens have to serve for a time in the military so I think Mm -hmm. this is what inducted into the military sort of meant it wasn't so much a draft but it also wasn't a voluntary assignment That makes sense if it's a new country trying to build Mm -hmm. up some sort of government and army and infrastructure. It would make sense if that, you know, people were kind of expected to go through a few years of service, Mm -hmm. I guess you could call it, in whatever capacity they could provide. Yeah, that is a point I didn't think about. So that makes a lot of sense. Also, we're in the middle of World War II at this point. And so... Here, while he's serving, his fascination with the rugged outdoors life sort of manifested into a fascination with rugged, uniformed military men, as it would. I get it. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's just the perfect breeding ground for yeah. for fascination with that kind of Strong, like, imagery. Strong, men. Yeah. Yeah. So during this time, more than any other... It was possible for men to have sex with other men, as we talked about in the previous pirate episode. We were talking about how men were often surrounded only by other men, military men, in small confines. And also, there were city-wide blackouts quite often because, again, there was little infrastructure. They were being invaded. This is the middle of a war. So people were just like, oh, there's no power. We can't see anything. I guess we'll just have sex with each other. Oh, whose hand is that? Oh, wait, what is my <laughs> hand God, yeah. you're touching? <laughs> yeah, that's sort of how he describes the whole thing of like, you just sort of fell into it. Literally, Oops. you just sort of, yeah, exactly. Oops, so, anal. My bad. Yeah. <laughs> so that's sort of like what 
he was experiencing during this time, but then after returning home from the war, sex between men became hidden again, and he wanted to put distance on himself and the very stigmatized feminine or flamboyant gay culture that was emerging and beginning to develop in some cities around Finland. Instead, he would create freelance artwork, do some advertising work freelance, and play music for cafes as his job while engaging in cruising, as we've talked about before, and participating in the more underground gay culture. So at this time in the larger cities of Finland, there started to be like more open gay bars or clubs, but he wasn't really looking to engage as much in that. However, in 1953, he did meet his long-term partner, Veli, and at this time, they're together. He's continuing his freelance artwork and advertising. Now, in 1956, a friend of his who saw more than just this, like, advertising artwork he was doing, but was familiar with his pornographic and erotic drawings, encouraged him to send those images to America, where there was sort of a more abundance of muscle and erotic magazines that already existed like there's sort of already a platform for them right this is when for sort of privacy for aesthetic reasons and because americans are dumb and can't pronounce words like me <clears throat> Rachel <Craig. laughs> so smart move he began signing his art simply as tom which is so catchy it's a stage name He's like the pornographic share. It's just okay. Tom. Okay. And so, and so uh, iconic. Yeah. So he signs his artwork, Tom. A few years later, as he gains popularity, someone else sort of identifies him with the moniker Tom of Finland. And that's sort of how okay. he becomes known. But if you see any of his art on display, it's just signed Tom. Tom. Which I feel like is sort of sexy and mysterious. Yeah. Get into it. Get on board with it. Okay. I'm into it. I'm the vision is You have here. no choice. I'm feeling it. No, I'm okay. feeling it. I love it. Okay. So once he signed Tom, sent the artwork over to America, it was immediately picked up by editors in the US, and one of Tom's laughing lumberjacks was featured on the cover of the spring 1957 Physique Pictorial magazine. Many of his drawings featured lumberjacks or uniformed men, which sort of makes sense, again, considering his history. And he is one of the fathers, or should we say daddies, of the Leatherman image that rose to global popularity and still persists to this day. So that's what I know him for, is mm-hmm. the leather daddies, the cop, ugh, the the policeman aesthetic i guess the officer like that's what i know tom of finland to be it's very much like dungeon leather daddy sex Mm -hmm. dungeon cult man like it's just like (laughs) hot you know yes that's exactly what it is it's like very hyper hyper masculine using those things like uniforms lumberjacks the the leather daddy thing there's a lot of he worked closely later in his life with some people more known for their like bdsm type art or like Mm -hmm. pornographic imagery so yeah definitely more of that type things however magazines that would so he's really popular he kind of cultivates this first image of all the things we were just talking about that's that image didn't really exist so Mm -hmm. he cultivates that and it's still popular today but magazines that would feature his drawings 
Although they knew that their audience was primarily gay men, they had to brand themselves as being focused on men's, I find this so funny, on men's physical fitness and health because depictions of male nudity, especially in a homoerotic way, were illegal and censored. Right. So everything was geared as like a fitness magazine, a workout magazine, but mm-hmm. it was just like ripped men with big bulges, like, yes. you know, popping out of whatever outfits they're wearing, yes. but all under the guise of this is for health and physical activities and, you know, like PE. Yeah, no, exactly. And so that was the thing too. Early artwork, it wasn't, it was sort of more erotic where there was allusion to those things like there would be like really tight clothes and bulges and things like that and more like physique rather Mm -hmm. than it wasn't pornographic in those earlier days it was what did i the the genre at this time before male nudity was legal and not censored which is like the beefcake genre as it was (laughs) it was referred to yeah so just like those allusions to male sexuality and gay sex without actually depicting any type of pornographic imagery right and so again these drawings were incredibly popular even though they had to be like sort of branded and packaged a little bit differently but they didn't pay like any other famous art would like he wasn't making Renoir money you know so he like because this is still sort of underground so they're popular amongst their key demographic but it he's not raking in the cash from this So Tom continued his day job in advertising from the 1950s through the 1970s when his art was successful enough to be sort of this full-time gig. And the change, the success, again, the popularity was always there, but the success came when the Supreme Court ruled in 1962 that male nudity was not inherently obscene and therefore there was a decriminalization of male nudity and pornography. So this also allowed for Tom to change his style to be slightly more photorealistic. So now there are some more realistic styling or stylized imagery because male nudity was no longer as taboo. Mm -hmm. Also funny that this was sort of the topic. There's a show, if you're interested in this, although there is quite a lot of nudity on HBO called Minx that talks about the introduction of magazines featuring male nudity rather than like like the play guy type stuff yeah yeah so this and it was all around the same time so it, it is interesting that before that people were like nobody wants to see this and it's obscene mm-hmm. and then very mm-hmm. quickly once it was like this isn't obscene the market sort of like was flooded with there was just yeah, yeah there was which just is funny because stuff. you said real more realistic but a lot of tom of finland and you know offshoots of this style of like leather daddy artwork the dicks are big oh oh yeah not in that way yes 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 oh my god it is like in like scary (laughs) yeah it is i was looking at i was for the podcast i was looking at (laughs) some of the artwork and I was actually, I was sitting with Eddie and I was like, I don't get it. Like what's going on in this picture? Like, it's not, it's not sexual in any way. And then I was like, oh my God, there, there's such big penises. Oh my gosh. I see what's happening now. Yeah. Cause massive. Everyone was fully clothed. And I was like, I don't know what I'm looking at. Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be looking at. And then I was like, oh, I see it. No, I do. I I see it. 
it like went down to their knees. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, what? what? The fuck? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. so photorealistic in his art style, in his way of creating sure. the the pieces, not realistic of human features. Anatomically correct, right? Similar <laughs> to other like pornographic videos or images today, probably yeah. not the most realistic. <laughs> right. So after this popularity, Tom had his first exhibition in 1976 in Germany, but his drawings were literally stolen. Like a bunch of, almost all of the artwork he had on display was just stolen. What? So yeah, I don't know. That was just briefly mentioned in an article and I couldn't find it anywhere else. Oh my God. And so does that affect his like longevity in career or was that just kind of like a, it was stolen for the show? Well, sort of. He... Like the article was like, yeah, so he kind of took a break from touring his art because he was upset. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. So in that way it did. So he took two years off before hosting Mm. any other exhibitions. And I don't know that he hosted any other ones in Germany. Also, I'll touch on it here. I didn't really know where to put this in. There was some controversy about imagery that included nazis and nazi uniforms in tom's work it's not that present as much and just to acknowledge tom did comment on that and said he did not want with his art he did not want to condone or make it seem like he was sympathizing in any way that was not the intention so he does not display those he doesn't stand by those works anymore Mm -hmm. it was just it was just people depicted wearing nazi Mm -hmm. uniforms but the the presentation could come off as being sympathetic and he clarified that that wasn't the case okay so just wanted to put that in there Mm -hmm. but then so after his break after his sort of hiatus he started touring his work and opening exhibits across america beginning in 1978 and continuing to travel for the next 10 years to a few different places showing his art one exhibit in los angeles displays his collection of 26 kake comics K-A-K-E comics, which were titled after the namesake protagonist, Kake, who is the artist's recurring alter ego. So this is one of the characters you can find a lot in Tom's work. The description says a pen and ink picture from Kake in the Wild West, in painted in 1982, for instance, shows the escapades of a leather-clad Kake in a cowboy western bar, documenting the convergence of two gay communities in an era still grappling with the criminalization of homosexual love. Tom radically hijacked traditional masculine roles. His emboldened cowboys, sailors, and bikers engage in couplings at turns boisterous, erotic, idyllic, and tender, unquote. So after this touring and earlier in his life, he was diagnosed with emphysema. Mm. He died in 1991 at the age of 71 from an emphysema-induced stroke. So... As I've really enjoyed doing the past few weeks, I really want to leave us with some people's statements about what their impact was from Tom or what working with him was like. So 
There's a quote here that reads, although he never attended a march or waved a banner at a demonstration, in the second half of the 20th century, no one did more for the furthering of gay pride than Tom did, said F. Valentine Hooven III, who is from Philadelphia and is Tom's biographer. He continues, he continues, many may have forgotten or never knew the shameful stereotypes of queer people that were once damn near universally believed and which Tom deliberately combated with each stroke of his pencil. He says, I was in my mid-twenties when Tom and I started corresponding in 1976 and was ripe and ready to experience the messages he portrayed in his works. Tom quickly became the most important person to influence my life to that date. I discovered through his work that I was as much of a man as any of my heterosexual counterparts and that sex and love between men could be a heroic bonding experience, not unlike that of Greek and Roman soldiers." Brontes Purnell, an artist and writer from California, writes, quote, We kind of take Tom of Finland for granted because, let's be honest, as gay men, do we really need any more images of super muscular white dudes? No, of course not. But also, he was an excellent portraitist, probably the last of the greatest of them, in a world where the camera has become omni-accessible. Also, when he was creating, I don't think anybody really understood how out of vogue or how hyper-questioned hyper-masculinity would become. But the thing that was absolutely radical was that he was doing this in the 40s. He continues to say, with Tom of Finland, it's important to be able to place him in this time period. He was definitely doing something that was going to get his ass killed, but he said, this is my art. This is the type of beauty I want to enact in the world. And there is no way to not be in awe of that. So in 2009, Tom, or Toko, was inducted into the Leather Hall of Fame, and some of his artworks are featured in the Leather Archives and Museum, if you're interested in seeing any of those. Valentin Hooven goes on again to say, in spite of his own affectionate term, Tom's work must be considered more than just dirty drawings, and given some of the credit for the change in the gay world self-image. When Tom's work was first published, homosexuals thought they had to be imitation of women and spent their lives hiding in the shadows. 35 years later, gays were much more likely to be hard-bodied sun lovers in boots and leather, masculinity personified. Tom's influence in that direction was no accidental byproduct of his art. From the beginning, he consciously strove to instill in his work a positive, upbeat openness. When asked if he was not a little embarrassed that all his art showed men having sex, he disagreed emphatically. I work very hard to make sure that the men I draw having sex are proud men having happy sex. And so, while of course being feminine or feeling more comfortable embodying femme traits is not a bad thing, the piece that I took away from this was that Tom created an opportunity and a space for gay men to embrace whatever aesthetic or expression suited them. It's hard to sort of look at this now, considering how harmful some gay communities can be about idealized bodies and masculinity. I think we talked about this in the Hanky Code episode Mm -hmm. about like very specific preferences and how those can be harmful to a number of people. But considering there was a time that this desire wasn't even an option, I think Tom opened the door for that, creating sort of a type of agency over your own fantasy or desire that was in direct contrast to the associations and stigma that surrounded gay culture of the time as just being sad, sensitive, and passive, and instead turned that into self-empowerment, pride, and joyfulness. 
The Tom of Finland Foundation is dedicated to preserving Tom's legacy and supporting erotic art. It opened in 1984. It's operated out of the Tom of Finland house, the Tom house, um, in the artist's former shared residence in Echo Park, Los Angeles. And as I said, there's also a Tom of Finland movie. I have not watched it, but it's fairly new, came out in 2017. So check that out if you're more interested. And be sure for this one to check out our Instagram to see some of these images. <laughs> oh God, I can't even imagine what we're we're gonna what be able for. to share. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that's so interesting, though. I I think it's really fascinating that someone who himself wasn't a public figure but still had such an impact on the queer community through his work and through mm-hmm. basically what he sent overseas is is kind of wild to me it's like you are creating such an impact on an entire generation and people don't even know what you look like people don't know who you are they just can recognize your work and can recognize you but if -hmm. you pass them on the street they wouldn't be like hey that's tama finland like yeah so it's just wild to me that he really was doing so much and people didn't even know who Mm -hmm. the face behind the creations was Yeah, that's what something that I guess sort of surprised me and what I really enjoyed about this story was a lot of times we talk about activists and we've, Jared and I, we've mentioned how we want to make sure we're exploring other type of subjects that may not um, often get their stories told. And I think this was a really interesting type of activism. As you said, like he wasn't in the public eye in that same way, but other materials, other type of work can still deeply impact people and culture and and acceptance. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's Mm -hmm. sort of what his story was for me and what I learned about it and what people still share about it, which I think is so cool. Absolutely. Well, thanks for your story. Mm -hmm. It's great. Thanks for listening. Hope you didn't blush too much. Oh, I did. Okay, so, so six six months in, you six months in, you're gonna surprise me with something. Yeah, you really wanted to do something where you could learn about a new person and really dive deeper into this kind of adult theme, adult topic, mm. NSFW, not safe for yeah. work kind of topic. I, on the other hand, went a completely different route. And I wanted to do something because I've been listening to that podcast. This is love so much. I wanted to tell Mm -hmm. a love story. I wanted to tell a story about love. And so this week I'm going to be talking about the story of Roy and Silo. Okay. I'm excited, but wow, were, were we in different spots? (laughs) Oh, like completely different mindsets entirely. My sources this week, and I'm going to be very vague about my sources because they give a lot away, and I told Rachel not to look up this topic. I've told her nothing about this topic. I've completely kept her in the dark. I've kept her in the closet. So Mm. my sources this week include two New York Times articles, one by Denisha Smith and one by Jonathan Miller, an article for Scientific American by Ambika Kamath, Julia Monk, Erin Giglio, Max Lambert, and Caitlin McDonough, Roy and Silo's Wikipedia page, and then four other Wikipedia pages that I will not name because they give it away. 
Oh my gosh, I really don't know anything about this. I, th that confused me more. So, like I said, ultimately, this is a story about love and heartbreak. Roy and Silo met at the Central Park Zoo in Manhattan, New York City. Both had been born in 1987, and they even looked alike. By 1998, the two had begun to develop a deep relationship, spending most of their time together, something kind of unusual for males of their age. And I should mention, before I get too deep into the story, that both Roy and Silo were chinstrap penguins. Oh, <laughs> I was like, oh no, are they going to be twins? What's happening? Oh, okay, okay. Surprise. You really led me on there. <laughs> so in 1998, zookeepers at the Central Park Zoo noticed Roy and Silo beginning to perform mating rituals typical of chinstrap penguins, such as entwining their necks and performing mating calls to one another. You know, they would bow to one another, they would swim together, they would sing, just doing normal penguin couple things. <laughs> the two quickly became inseparable. They only really wanted to stand by one another's side, adamantly and actively ignoring other penguins, especially female penguins, who equally didn't seem to want anything to do with either Roy or Silo. A year later, in 1999, the two male penguins are observed attempting to hatch a rock as if it were an egg, as all of the male-female couples of the time were doing. Some may call it jealousy or theft, but I call it manifestation. Roy and Silo <laughs> were even spotted attempting to steal eggs away from other couples to hatch on their own. Oh, that's cute, though. They just really want to hatch an egg together. Like, this is the one thing they want to do. <laughs> And you know what? Let them. All those other penguins don't need that. Don't need the eggs. I mean, do they even want them? Let them right. have the eggs. And you know what? I I would say the zookeepers at the Central Park Zoo agree with you. So the zookeepers, who knew that both of these penguins were male, decided to put them to the ultimate test. They replaced the rock Roy and Silo were attempting to hatch with a fake dummy egg made of rock and plaster. Roy and Silo proved that they were able to incubate an egg real well during this period trial, and so are rewarded with the second egg of a couple who had been failing at successfully hatching two eggs simultaneously. For the next 34 days, Roy and Silo took turns incubating the egg. They sat on it, they kept it warm in the folds of their abdomens, and then, with their hard work paying off, finally getting what they had wanted, Roy and Silo became fathers to a baby girl named Tango. Oh my gosh, this is the cutest thing I've ever heard. And they have a little egg in their belly flaps. <laughs> it gets better. For the next two and a half months, Roy and Silo doted on Tango, keeping her warm and feeding her food from their beaks. And then, when she was strong enough to venture out into the exhibit on her own, she left her father's and entered the mating world herself. And upon reaching breeding age, she even paired with another female penguin for at least two mating seasons in a row called Tanuzi. Now, Roy and Silo aren't the first male-male penguin relationship noted in New York. There was Milu and Squawk two young males at the same zoo that at a young age began bowing and billing, performing courtship rituals. 
Before Milu and Squawk, there was Gregory and Mickey, two female Gen 2 penguins who tried to incubate eggs together. There's Wendell and Cass, a devoted male African penguin pair that lived at the New York Aquarium in Coney Island that was reported in 2002. However, Roy and Silo were the it couple that really brought the public's attention to (laughs) quote-unquote queer penguins and what we might call homosexuality in animals in general. And the debate and discourse around homosexuality or sexuality in general in animals is a really fascinating and complex topic. We know that there are hundreds of species of animals and insects that naturally have same-sex couples, including dolphins, elephants, bonobos, gorillas, lions, giraffes, and so many more. For example, in a 1997 book, a researcher studying bonobos, a type of great ape, wrote that almost all bonobos are bisexual, engaging in homosexual behaviors hourly, despite being in captivity or in nature. So it doesn't really matter. It's just that's what they do. I think the biggest takeaway from that is hourly. Like on the hour, within the hour, they're doing something gay. (laughs) Yeah, like that's, the the timing of it is more surprising than the fact that the tendency exists. (laughs) It's just nonstop. They also know that almost all previous researchers of bonobos avoided the topic of sex in their findings, or if they did make a note of it, especially when two female bonobos were found having sex, it would say, quote, the females are very affectionate, end quote. So it's like, even in hit do, animals, it's they're really good friends. And do you not find that even weirder? Like, to me, it's even weirder to be like, like, that makes you seem like a freak. Like, what kind of shame do you have around sex that you're like, I can't scientifically report findings because it makes me feel icky. Right, like it has, they have to be friends. No way can they That's be having sex. So- yeah, that's that's more bizarre to me than just if I were to read a research finding that was like, yeah, these animals just sort of have like to fuck. Sex. Right, right. They have sex with the same sex as them. Cool. It's weirder that you intentionally avoided it. Absolutely. <laughs> and many will see these same sex interactions within animals and say, well, if it's natural in animals, if this is something that animals can't control, it therefore can't be an immorality of humans. And this has always kind of been my way of thinking. Like, if two male lions can have sex, then why do so many people see being queer as unnatural? On the other hand, conservatives and regressionists can use the same sort of argument of homosexuality in animals and say, see, this behavior is animalistic and below human nature, so we have to condemn this. This isn't of humans. Right. And it doesn't have a cut and dry answer as many of us would like to think. And this type of research dates back to the 1700s, but has actually been quite difficult to prove because researchers often stay away from the subject, afraid people would think that they were queer or have suspicions raised about their sexuality. So like you're saying, it's almost weirder that you're not reporting on it because people are like, oh, you're reporting on gay monkeys, so you must be gay. Right. So you're just waiting for the monkeys to do something gay? Why? Why are you doing that? And it's like, that's my job. I'm a researcher of monkeys. (laughs) Right, right. So it's like such a weird fear that they were completely avoiding the topic of sex and sexuality altogether. Mm -hmm. Still to this day, scientists and researchers of the subject are incredibly hesitant to make the connection between animals and humans. 
But in 1999, Bruce Bagamile published Biological Exuberance, Animal Homosexuality and Natural Diversity, one of the first books to give an overview of scholarly studies of homosexual behavior in animals. The book describes same-sex sexual behavior in a broad spectrum of animals and also maintains that this behavior is found more frequently in the wild than in captivity. Some scientists altogether say that same-sex sexual behavior in animals is not even linked to sex. Marlene Zuck, author of Sexual Selections, What We Can and Can't Learn About Sex from Animals, writes in her 2002 book that there's a possibility of the same-sex sexual behavior as an evolutionary purpose, ensuring the survival of the species. By not producing their own offspring, animals are able to support and nurture their relatives' offsprings, which then helps create a stronger, better community. Mm -hmm. And I think while they're not trying to connect animal behavior and human behavior in terms of sexuality, I think that's also kind of a big point in human nature as well. Like a lot of queer people Mm -hmm. don't want kids. Like I don't really want kids, but I would love to help raise my siblings' kids or my friends' kids. You know, I would rather be the fun uncle that helps take care of them because one person cannot do everything. Right, right. And like, we definitely still share, like, our brains definitely still have animal parts of them, of which is included in sex, regardless of what kind of sex you're having. That's coming right. from a part of your brain that's like, survive. Hey, right. buddy, right, gotta right, survive. Right. You gotta do this. And so, like, of course, we've evolved to to think other things as well, besides just those very critical pieces to help mm-hmm. us survive. But yeah, I think it makes we still have a lot of those tendencies to be like, like social rejection is an evolutionary thing that we still feel. And because we know we won't survive if we're rejected by our group. So there's a lot of those things that definitely you could still see. And I think that that's a good point, like being able to care for others. And also like, if there's not enough food, probably Mm -hmm. you shouldn't bring other right life into the world because then you're fighting amongst yourselves for food or shelter or whatever. Right. And that was a big That was a big point in some of the articles that I read that were saying, in some cases, so the reason why I've been using same-sex sexual behavior is because a lot of researchers and scientists are wary of using homosexuality in relation to animals because then it puts this Mm -hmm. kind of like human culture aspect into a biological field where they feel like there is a separation. So they're Mm -hmm. saying- In some of these instances, same-sex sexual behavior is beneficial to tribes and animals and packs because of what you're saying, because Mm -hmm. there's not enough resources, because there's not enough, you know, food, water, shelter, all of these things that if you keep reproducing, you're Mm going to put your entire pack or tribe or whatever in a detrimental situation, in, in trouble, whereas if some of these animals don't reproduce and create offspring Mm -hmm. then they're able to maintain and help the ones that are there already and it creates a healthy stronger pack yeah how many millennials borderline millennials do you know Uh, i think all of our friends included that are like the climate change is a real issue maybe we shouldn't uh add to that by cultivating humans more of them maybe we don't need it i would say we don't need more of us And so, like, that's the exact 
same thing. It feels like, again, I'm not making, I'm not making that comparison, but I know hearing that Mm -hmm. feels like it's a self-preservation thing. Right. Exactly. I feel the same exact way about it. And I think a lot of people do too. Mm -hmm. Some other scientists claim that same-sex sexual behavior is about bond formation between animals, a sort of test run or practice when they're young to then perform the proper rituals, you know, mating rituals when they come of mating age. In the Scientific American article, they proposed the following hypothesis. Quote, The ancestral animal species mated indiscriminately with regard to sex, i.e. they mated with individuals of all sexes, if only because it is unlikely that the other traits required to recognize a compatible mate, differences in size, shape, color, or odor, for example, evolved at exactly the same time as sexual behaviors, end quote. They also note that, quote, it should never be the place of science to make normative arguments about people. Indeed, we suggest that human culture has likely had far more impact on the study of biology than vice versa. Instead, we hope our hypothesis will expand our understanding of the diversity of the natural world. We encourage scientists to consider what discoveries in evolutionary biology are possible when we break free from the cultural norms and assumptions that have historically constrained scientific creativity, end quote. Mm. So this topic of same-sex sexual behavior in animals is incredibly intricate and complex, and I am not a scientist, as we know. But I want to also pose these thoughts by Marlene Zuck, quote, Sexuality is a lot broader term than most people want to think. You have this idea that the animal kingdom is strict, old-fashioned, Roman Catholic, that they have sex just to procreate. Suddenly, you're beginning to see that sex is not necessarily about reproduction. Sexual expression means more than making babies. Why are we surprised? People are animals. End quote. And so now... This is where the heartbreak comes into Roy and Silo's story. No. In 2005, shortly after the news about Roy and Silo broke in the press, both at the age of 18 and after six whole years of being committed to one another, Roy and Silo began to separate after a more aggressive pair of penguins forced them out of their nest. Silo's eyes then began to wander, and he left Roy, Repairing with a female penguin from California named Scrappy. Scrappy? Oh, God, what a homewrecker. Scrappy! <laughs> After the breakup, Roy had been seen alone in a corner, staring at a wall. Oh, no! This breakup rocked the world of politics again, with Christian conservatives taking the stance that all Democrats and liberals must be furious over the split, claiming that homosexuality is not natural, and this just proves it. While queer people said they were upset, not furious, that this fun relationship that started some really important conversations has come to an end. The zookeeper who originally got Roy and Silo their egg to hatch was even disappointed, saying he thought they made a good couple but that penguins in this late stage of their lives rarely had same-sex partners, so the split was almost inevitable. But the relationship of Roy and Silo found a way to stay relevant, wholesome, and live on past the couple's public breakup, which comes in the form of a children's picture book. In April of 2005, 
and Tango Makes Three is released, telling the true story of Roy, Silo, and Tango. It's written by Peter Parnell and Justin Richardson, with illustrations by Henry Cole. There is even a German version of the book released entitled Zwei Papas for Tango, Two Daddies for Tango by Edith Schreiber-Vick and Carola Holland, and both books became instant bestsellers. And Tango Makes Three has won various awards, including the American Library Association's Notable Children's Book Award in 2005, the ASPCA's Henry Berg Book Award in 2005, and the Nickelodeon Junior Family Magazine Best Book of the Year. It has also become a hot topic for controversy, getting pulled into legal cases and debates over same-sex marriage, adoption, and homosexuality in animals. The American Library Association reports that Antango Makes Three was the most frequently challenged book in 2006, 2007, and 2008, then dropped to the number two spot in 2009, then back up to the number one spot in 2010. It also appears on the list in the years 2012, 2014, 2017, and 2019. It was also the fourth most banned book between 2000 and 2009, and the sixth most banned book from 2010 to 2019. And most arguments against Antango Makes Three claim that the book promotes the quote-unquote homosexual agenda and is an quote-unquote attack against families headed by heterosexuals. And the reason I'm laughing kind of through this entire thing is because this is a children's book about (laughs) penguins that have a it's like parks and rec almost it is. when they have like the, the marriage it's like when they have the marriage ceremony for two penguins and they don't realize that both of the penguins are male <laughs> and then it's this whole uproar it's like becoming a whole it's like y'all this is a these are penguins it is a cute little fun story we don't have to get so serious about it when we talk about um, banned books or, or most talked about censored books, like Matthew McConaughey can write books and nobody cares. Like, why does the, why do we let that happen? But somebody can't write a cute children's book about penguins. We have bigger right. fish to fry, people. Literally bigger yeah. fish to fry for the penguins, to feed the penguins. For the penguins. For the penguins. Yes. yes. Hashtag for the penguins. <laughs> so while I said it was just a cute book, I also want to reiterate that This book means a lot to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Scholars in children's literature hail the book as a way of introducing alternative, diverse, and queer families into the classroom and into conversations at an early age. They argue as well that the story does not take a stance on same-sex marriage, but rather the validity of same-sex parents and families. And since the publicity of Roy, Silo, and Tango... The practice of letting same-sex penguin couples adopt an egg or chick together has continued around the world. In 2009, German zookeepers gave a pair of male Humboldt penguins, Zet and Viopunk, an egg, which they hatched and then raised together. In 2011, Chinese zookeepers gave a chick to a male-male couple after it was apparent that the birth parents could not look after two chicks at the same time. In 2014, At Wingham Wildlife Park in Kent, UK, an egg was abandoned by its mother after the father refused to help incubate it. The egg was then given to two Humboldt penguins named Jums and Kermit, and in a BBC interview, the park owner says, quote, These two have so far proven to be two of the best penguin parents we have had yet, 
end quote. And finally, in 2018, two male Gentoo penguins at Sea Life Sydney in Australia successfully hatched an egg after being given a dummy egg like Roy and Silo. In 2020, the two hatched a second egg, and their first chick hatched her own egg, making them grandparents. And that is the short and sweet story of Roy, Silo, Tango, and same-sex animal couples around the world. That was very cute. Oh, I enjoyed that so much. And I can't believe I never, I wasn't like tuned into that. I've seen that book. I've definitely seen that book. I guess I didn't really know the the background on it. And I love that. How lovely. Me too. It was like a sweet, nice thing to read and find and you know, it was a yeah. sad public breakup. That it was celebrity hot goss about the penguins, but yeah, it was like real. Like front page was, People magazine news. Yeah, and it was a historical event in the eyes of people around this world. It like created conversations and became like a household conversation in the early two thousands. Yeah. Like it did definitely do a lot, even though these were just like two penguins who enjoyed each other's company and just wanted to hatch an egg together right and i think i do think that there was a there was a lot of controversy and it sparked a lot of conversations some of which were bad and are difficult to 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 compare obviously and of Mm -hmm. course sexuality is so different in humans of course we can see that and you know the the spectrum of queerness that exists and and that exists for people but i think it is so positive you know like having family that doesn't have a traditional heterosexual structure or parents i think stuff like this is so so important yeah to be able to really normalize you know different family dynamics different family structures and that makes me so happy all around what a lovely what a lovely story and scrappy I have some I have some feelings about Scrappy. I know it's not your fault, but you just were in the wrong place at the wrong time, I think, mm-hmm. and it makes me a little bit sad. Maybe one day we'll forgive her, but that day is not Maybe today. one day. Thank you for sharing this story and it, and welcome. its importance. And if you have young kids, if you are around young kids, I want to read this book now. Maybe I'll have to buy it for some of the young kids in my family. Do it. Thanks for tuning in to episode 26 of Historically Really Good Friends, where we talked about expressions of sexuality. This is your weekly reminder that acknowledging the queerness of our history makes even hatching an egg a little bit more fun. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. And to see some of those juicy, juicy photos from this week's episode, make sure to check out our Instagram at historicallyreally. And if you feel so inclined, please remember to send us your personal stories at historicallyreallygoodfriends at gmail.com or just DM us right on Instagram. We hope to see you again next week and thank you for celebrating six months of the podcast with us. Goodbye. Goodbye.